KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. The Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, ending 50 years of federal abortion rights. We're now moving back to the time where they're basically saying that women have no rights. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. We'll discuss what the Supreme Court's decision means for reproductive health on a state and federal level. A a right of a woman to terminate her pregnancy, which existed yesterday under the federal constitution, no longer exists today. And we look at how difficult child care is to find within San Diego's child care deserts. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. The Supreme Court has ruled today to strike down Roe v. Wade, ending 50 years of federal abortion rights. This morning, California State President Pro Tem Tony Atkins called the ruling a dark day for the country. I'm incredibly angry. And I'm scared, and I'm hearing that from every woman I know. The Supreme Court has unleashed a seething fury felt by the majority of Americans who worry for the very lives of their daughters, their granddaughters, and their loved ones. The ruling had been long anticipated after a leaked draft decision from the court was made public last month. Roughly half the states are expected to either outlaw or severely restrict abortion as a result of the decision. Here now to discuss what this ruling means for the immediate future of reproductive rights is Maggie Schroeder, a San Diego lawyer and president of the Lawyers Club of San Diego. Maggie, welcome back to Midday Edition. Thank you for having me. What is your reaction to this ruling and how do you think it will impact women in the country? My reaction is the same as that of Senator Atkins. Um, This is a, we are appalled and dismayed by the Supreme Court's opinion that is, that is determined that now the constitutional right to abortion no longer exists. I fear for uh, women in the states who have now already passed restrictive abortion laws, um, in some cases criminalizing an abortion. Lawyers Club of San Diego has always been a pro-choice organization, and our position is that abortion is a fundamental and necessary healthcare that women should be able to make with their doctors without government interference. And right now there are trigger laws swiftly going into effect in some states across the country where abortions are now outright banned or restricted. How far reaching is this ruling? I mean, could states ban procedures to treat miscarriage? And what are the implications for things like Plan B or perhaps various forms of birth control? They are taking the position that if these individual rights are not expressly stated in the Constitution, then they are at risk for being overruled. So absolutely, I think the Supreme Court is next going to look at whether contraception is legal. Um, Plan B, which is actually a mechanism to prevent pregnancy, is not actually a form of abortion, is certainly on the chopping block, as well as the rights of women to obtain contraception. It's been mentioned that this ruling puts the health of women in jeopardy. Can you talk a bit about that? 
this decision in those states that are going to restrict their right to abortion is really stripping women of that fundamental choice. Um, pregnancy is not, many women experience extremely difficult pregnancies, life-threatening pregnancies, um, and they need this option, which is a healthcare option, um, when they're going through this very difficult situation. California has really led the charge in recent years to solidify reproductive rights as they've come under fire elsewhere in the nation. What role do you see the state playing as a result of today's ruling. Absolutely. So California, um, in fact, right after the draft opinion was laid, California has takes taken substantive and um, sort of expansive measures to expand the right to reproductive health and the right to abortion in the state of California. They have um, up for review are certain proposals that would um, make it so that doctors traveling out of state from California do not face criminal penalties and are protected if they were to perform those services. Governor Newsom has also um, said that he is going to put many more resources into funding abortion clinics and um, healthcare clinics in the state of California to to address what we believe is going to be an influx of patients coming from out of state who seek these vital healthcare services. And the state uh, Senate has passed an amendment to put the right to an abortion in its state constitution. It now needs to be passed by the Senate and voters. How likely do you think it is that that will happen? I think that's likely in the state of California. We have um, the majority of the state legislature, as well as Governor Newsom, have expressed their um, extreme opposition to the Dobbs ruling and guarantee, you know, and have stated that they are dedicated to assuring that this right remains in the state of California and to fight that it, you know, is a right for women across the country. It is anticipated that California will see an influx of women seeking reproductive health care. How do you think the state will handle that? I, I, like I said before, I think Governor Newsom and the state is anticipating an influx of women seeking these healthcare services. Uh, Governor Newsom has dedicated additional resources to funding that, providing more resources for the clinics. However, even with that additional funding, those additional resources, I think we are still going to be in a situation where women are going to face heightened waiting times. Um, it's going to be more difficult for California women potentially to seek services. Um, it just remains to be seen. I mean, one of the serious consequences of this is that women in these other states, oftentimes they don't have the resources to travel two or three days to California to take that time off of work to make and then also, you know, whatever, um, whatever recovery time is involved in that. And so while we likely will see women traveling here, the actual effect um, remains to be seen because this is something that many women cannot are not now not going to be able to access at all. And that's very troubling. Are you worried that further reproductive rights will be under fire as a result of this ruling? I am. I'm concerned. And actually, I believe that any right that's conditioned on the right to privacy in the Constitution and in, and also the right, any rights that are conditioned under the Equal Protection Clause are now at risk because the Supreme Court has really stated here, you know, Justice Alito spends many, many pages talking about the fact that abortion is not grounded in the history of our nation. He cites cases from the 1700s and the 1800s pointing out that most states at that time considered abortion a crime. But what they fail to mention is at that time, women were considered property and had no rights. Domestic violence was not a crime at that time. And when those rights started to change is when women came in, got their law licenses, and started to advocate for change. Um, we're now moving back to the time where they're basically saying that women have no rights. They have no more rights than an unborn fetus. In the opinion, they don't mention the rights of women at all, and the adverse effects that help unplanned or even a planned pregnancy can have on women and people who can become pregnant. 
I've been speaking with Maggie Schroeder, a San Diego lawyer and president of the Lawyers Club of San Diego. Maggie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now we consider the constitutional implications of a decision that has effectively ended 50 years of federal abortion rights. As states across the nation brace for the impact of this ruling, legal experts are also considering what further constitutional rights may be considered by the court in the near future. Joining me now with more is Dan Eaton, a constitutional law expert and partner at the San Diego firm of Seltzer, Kaplan, McMahon, and Vitek. Dan, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good to be with you, Jay. So, Dan, just how unprecedented is a decision like this? Well, obviously, the Supreme Court doesn't overrule precedents, especially longstanding precedents every day. But that doesn't mean it doesn't overrule them from time to time. One thinks of the ruling over turning uh, the obligation of public employees to pay to uh, unions, even if they're non-members. That was a Janus decision written some years ago by, again, Justice Alito, who, of course, penned the majority opinion in today's Dobbs ruling. Remind us how we came to have a conservative-leaning court and the impact of having a bench that leans one way or the other. Well, okay, so a couple of things there. First, of course, uh, political decision-making is not the same as judicial decision-making, whether conservative or liberal. The second thing is that, as John McCain famously said, elections have consequences. The fact of the matter is that President Trump exercised a greater impact on the law with the three justices he appointed who made up the majority of the majority uh, than he did uh, as uh, President of the United States. And the fact that President uh, Donald Trump appointed uh, the uh, those three justices instead of a President Hillary Clinton matters. And it, it certainly is reflected in today's decision. Could President Biden have expanded the bench? Well, could he? No, not unilaterally. I mean, it would take an act of Congress to do that, although the point that you raise is an important one because the number of Supreme Court justices is not set by the Constitution. It's set by statute. That said, it hasn't been changed for well over 100 years, and it would be very, very difficult in today's very closely divided Congress for anything like that to happen. That's why when you're talking about legislative response to this particular ruling, look to the states. I don't think it's realistic to look to the closely divided uh, federal legislature. You know, some legal experts have noted that for the first time in years, the Supreme Court is moving to restrict civil rights rather than expand civil rights. Uh, What do you make of that analysis? Well, I mean, of course, it depends a lot on, on your perspective. Clearly, what they did, uh, what the uh, justices of the Supreme Court did today was to say that a, uh, a right of a woman to terminate her pregnancy, which existed yesterday uh, under the federal constitution, no longer exists uh, today. Uh, so uh, as far as uh, restricting uh, civil rights, yeah, that is certainly one way of looking at it, but it's not the only way of looking at it. And it's sort of looking at it through something of a, a political lens. At the end of the day, you are going to see constitutional law continue to evolve. Today is the latest statement by the Supreme Court on the question of abortion. It won't be the last. There is concern over whether or not this ruling will lead the court to revisit other constitutional protections. Uh, Is that likely? Not likely, but it's possible. Justice Clarence Thomas, in his concurring opinion, said these privacy rulings dating back to the uh, Griswold decision back in 1965 doesn't really stand under the court's precedent. And in fact, the liberal justices, the three members who dissented, Breyer, 
uh, Breyer Sotomayor and Kagan, who who signed an unusual joint dissent, said, yeah, if you accept the rationale of the opinion on its face, these other uh, privacy protections and same-sex marriage and so forth don't stand either, except that the majority, Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh, separately concurring, said, no, that is not true. These other rights are different. Abortion is different because you have competing interests, the woman and the fetus. And therefore, uh, it is a different analysis. And these other privacy precedents are not necessarily implicated by uh, this ruling. Is there any signaling from the court about what future rulings could be coming down the pipeline? Well, there is in one case. That's why I, I keep referring to Justice Kavanaugh's uh, view, because it is important uh, in his concurring opinion. And he's viewed as the swing justice on this particular court. He said repeatedly in his concurring opinion that the Constitution is neither pro-choice nor pro-life. And he said, I'm going to go ahead and answer some questions on people's minds. He said, one, can a state prosecute somebody, a woman who travels to another state to get an abortion? He said, no, there is an interstate right to travel that would protect that and preclude a state from punishing uh, that prohibits abortion from moving on uh, to uh, from uh, moving to another state or going to another state to get a, a, an abortion. And the other question is, though, how far will states go? The dissent says that, look, states are now free under the rationality opinion because the, the majority says it's rational to protect the life of the unborn fetus to prohibit abortion all the way back to fertilization. We're going to have to see what happens in this rich laboratory of experiments that the states constitute to see how far this goes. But the place to look is going to be in the state legislature, the state courts, the lower federal courts, and ultimately, yet again, the Supreme Court in the months and years ahead. It now falls to the individual states to decide how they will approach reproductive rights. What do you think this post-Roe landscape will look like? It will look like the way a lot of issues have looked like, Jade, and that is that we are in a very, very politically divided country. And you are going to see red and blue states assert themselves on this issue in a stark way that you don't see in many other issues. You are going to see a lot of political activity that is going to reflect just how divided this country is. And it may even reflect population choices in the years ahead. We won't really know what the full ramifications of this decision are until the months and years ahead. But this is a constitutional decision that undoubtedly will have political and other consequences, even though the decision itself was not politically driven. I've been speaking with constitutional law expert Dan Eaton. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jade. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Child care is hard to find across the country and in the San Diego region, too. We've previously reported that one in eight child care centers closed here during COVID. KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser tells us some areas were disproportionately hit, creating what are called child care deserts. <laughs> 14-month-old Calendar Lucky has a lot to say. Normal for a toddler, but not for his mom's work meetings. And so I was trying to like scramble and find backup for taking care of my son while I finish up the workday. If he was in daycare, it would be consistent. I'd drop him off and pick him up. But he's not in daycare because all the slots in his rural North County town, Fallbrook, are taken. 
we are on like five wait lists. <laughs> um, it stretches from here in Fallbrook down to Oceanside. Um, everybody is booked. Terlecki and other Fallbrook parents are living in the biggest childcare desert in the county. There is just one licensed childcare slot for every four kids under age five in their region, according to data from the San Diego YMCA. And not just in Fallbrook, it's Bonzel, Oceanside, Vista, Temecula. Like, you might get lucky to get something in Temecula, but that's, you know, a 30-minute drive from here. The need for childcare is dire everywhere. Staffing shortages, rising costs, and COVID forced many of these childcare businesses to close. Added challenges make the situation even worse in the Fallbrook region. A lot of the buildings are older, and so sometimes they don't meet. The regulations for licensing. Nikki Bowles owns one of the few preschools in the area. At least seven other child care centers closed during COVID, according to state licensing data. Their providers were older and didn't want to risk or had caught COVID and didn't want to risk exposing other people. Um, but because they were older, they decided to retire. The Fallbrook region's proximity to Camp Pendleton means lots of families with young kids live there. And those kids might not get into military child care. The population of kids under five has grown 16 percent in the last 10 years, far outpacing overall population growth. And supply hasn't kept up with demand. Bowles is about to add 24 more slots specifically for infants. I haven't advertised. I haven't done anything. I've had people coming by and stopping and asking about the infant care and when it's going to open. So I have 20 families on a waiting list. I just kind of became aware of the need, kind of been talking to parents, of quality childcare in the area. Another Fallbrook resident, Dennis Ashworth, recently retired and during COVID decided to open a home childcare with his wife. Right now we have three children under two and three children over two. The phone's been ringing off the hook about moms with really young children looking for daycare. The state currently has funding to help providers like the Ashworths get their child care license, says Lori Hahn with the YMCA's Child Care Resource and Referral Program. Helping them open their license for the first time or expand their license to a large license. Also, if they want to expand to non-traditional hours or to change the children they care for to include infants and toddlers. If you're happy and you know, clap your hands. Ashworth just expanded his license to take in more kids. He says he's glad to use his energy and his Fallbrook home to help families in his village. If we weren't doing this, what would I be doing? You know, just sitting around and getting old, older. So I think it does keep you young and, and it's, it's kind of exciting every morning when the parents pull up with the kids, you know, and you chat with them and the kids are always excited so it's a good thing but he knows adding a few more spaces at his home does little to change fallbrook's status as a child care desert claire tregesser kpbs news keep looking where are the eggs to see a searchable map of child care deserts go to kpbs.org KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs.
featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at CandlewoodArtsFestival.org.